Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings-on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, listeners, to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So this episode marks yet another first for us as we look at one of the most important animation studios, uh, certainly in Hollywood, of the last 20 years, Blue Sky. Now, as will become clear, I hope Blue Sky made significant contributions to the shape and direction of US animation and particularly computer animation. They sort of came in under the radar. They were formed in February 1987 um, by animator Chris Wedge uh, and the studio recently hit the headlines as they unfortunately are now in the past tense. The Walt Disney Company acquired Blue Sky as part of their purchase in 2019 um, of 20th Century Fox uh, and then in February 2021 promptly announced that Blue Sky would be shut down uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, though we might debate that as part of our um, discussions over the next hour or so. Um, today's episode looks at Blue Sky's uh, 2011 computer animated film Rio, directed by Carlos Saldana, uh, a colourful musical that tells the story of a blue macaw who is transported to Rio um, to mate with a female macaw named Jewel. Now, um, Rio is, is a film that I encountered during the course of my PhD and my subsequent book on, on computer animation. Um, so I've got a, a few notes on, on sort of Blue Sky's role within Hollywood animation and its emergent studio system of the, of the 2000s. Anthropomorphism, obviously, uh, a bit on narrative, uh, and also um, the role of lighting, coincidentally, which again will become clear based on uh, based on our guest. Um, Alex convinced me that Anna Hathaway starring as a blue macaw and a fantastical version of Rio de Janeiro is a fantasy film. I mean, d- 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 you, you, you are hoist by your own petard. Do I need convincing? No, I mean, it's, um, we can talk about anthropomorphism. We can talk about urban fantasies and, and constructing uh, cities on screen and the fantastical and yet realistic way in which we, uh, the relationship we have with cities on screen. So I've got lots to say. And obviously I've got notes on lighting too, Chris. I wonder why that might be that we found that uh, point of common, common synergy. Yeah, it's weird that, isn't it? Uh, yeah. S- so, in that, what is one of the worst and most awkward transitions we've ever done on the podcast, let me introduce our guest um, for this instalment, uh, who is Michael Tanzillo, who has worked as a senior lighting technical director at Blue Sky on a number of computer animated films uh, over the last sort of decade or so. 
including three of the Ice Age films, so Dawn of the Dinosaurs 2009, Continental Drift in 2012, and Collision Course in 2016. Today's film, Rio, um, and its 2014 sequel, uh, Peanuts movie, Ferdinand, and then the recent Tom Holland, Will Smith feature, Spies in Disguise from a couple of years ago. Michael's also taught the craft of 3D lighting to hundreds of students through his education company, which I know he's going to talk about, um, Academy of Animated Arts, uh, an online academy teaching the artistic side of animation and VFX. And he's also, as if that wasn't enough, also an author um, uh, and is the author of Lighting for Animation, The Art of Visual Storytelling, which I think came out in 2016. So what better way to mark our first foray into the world of Blue Sky than with Michael? So thank you uh, so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, guys. Um, so th- I have lots to say and, and lots about lighting and, and um, Rio is something that I was as I was watching I said to Alex before we came on I really hope that Alex is enjoying this because I've got no idea what he thinks of computer animated films as the fantasy guy really um, but it's an interesting yet entirely appropriate choice I think so alongside the, the Ice Age films the two Rio features are among Blue Sky's, I think, most profitable franchises. Uh, and as a lighting director, I can totally see why the sumptuous imagery of, of Rio is such a rich film for us, I think, to talk about when it comes to, to kind of lighting techniques. But firstly, I just wondered if you could give listeners a sense of your sort of work in the lead up to Rio. You've been part of uh, Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, and then the spin-off short Scratch Continental Crack Up. So how did you kind of get to, to working at, at Blue Sky? Uh, yeah, so I was an art student in the early 2000s um, at uh, here in the US, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was studying photography, I was doing some painting stuff and just kind of uh, figuring things out. I picked up 3D software um, as I was working in an art gallery because somebody submitted a proposal to the gallery as a 3D model of the space and put their artwork in there. And I was like, that's amazing. I was like, and they were a mediocre artist, but they got the show because they presented it really well. And I was like, hey, I'm a mediocre artist. I could use all the help I can get. So I so I started learning 3D. I worked with um, a former professor of mine who asked me to help do some 3D images for a book that he was working on. And then I just kind of liked the craft and, and I, I didn't know what, what that meant until I saw Finding Nemo. Uh, it was the yeah, old yeah. version of Netflix that used to send you DVDs. I, yeah, I watched yeah. the movie yeah, and they yeah. just, it kind of like auto played into these after uh, the special behind the scenes stuff. And it showed all these artists off the coast of Australia going scuba diving to help define the look of the film to say that, you know, out in open ocean, it's more crystal clear blue and it gets greener and murkier and, and, and creates more uh, drama as you get closer to the shore. And my mind was blown. I was like, that is amazing. And so I immediately started applying for because this was the first time I heard that lighting jobs existed. Mm. And uh, so I started applying for them grossly uh, uh, unqualified for all of them. And so I decided uh, that I just that, that I went back to graduate school at the Savannah College of Art and Design. Um, I was only moderately more uh, qualified for a job. I got a job as a render wrangler at Blue Sky out of school, which did, was not artistic. It was it was managing a series of computers to make sure they didn't turn off overnight and uh, optimizing renders and other. I, I loved it. I was in hog heaven. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, and then I uh, from there, I, I started working my way into lighting reviews and doing practice stuff and, and demonstrating my skills. And then little by little, I worked my way up to a senior lighting artist there. Terrific. So, so you were, you were, this was your first, when you got into Blue Sky, you were, as Chris said, working on the Ice Age franchises. 
were those in slightly more junior roles? And then was this a sort of step up with Rio and, and Rio? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And... So, so the Ice Age 3 is when I transitioned from being um, a more technical role on the film, the render wrangling stuff, to where I started lighting my first shots. Um, okay. uh, that was in that was in Ice Age 3. And then Rio, I think it was the first Rio, was my first like head first dive. I ended up lighting and compositing um, over, it was over 100 shots in that film. So that was like my first completely engrossed experience in, in light into, a, into okay, lighting cool. a project so for, as it's my job on these sort of episodes to to speak for the perhaps <laughs> technic technophobic listeners um to address the blue macaw in the in the room um what what what, what how, how does one light an animation when surely uh there's nothing to light right what talk talk to us about talk, talk a, to us about a great question <laughs> yeah so so my the role of the lighting artist on an animated film is you ingest the animated shot so if you ever look at an animation demo reel it's it's usually a lot of characters over great props or it looks kind of flat and looks a little bit bland that's because there's no lighting that's been done so so the way that it works is you get a shot that's already been animated the the material and shading artist has already made the the shirt look like cloth the skin look like skin the glasses look like glass your job is to infuse the scene with mood and emotion and I would say that lighting artists have three main tasks. One is we have to communicate the mood of the scene. We work with the director, the art director to establish mood, to say, this is very romantic, but the drama builds as the scene goes on. There'll be things like, you know, this character is being chased at the beginning of this of this series of shots. So we need we need to create a lot of drama there, but they slip away from the, the villain. So we needed to, to calm down a little bit by the end. So, or it's like, you know, Basically, it's it's establishing the mood in a visual way because all artists on films are storytellers and we all contribute to the final story in the end. Our job as lighting artists to contribute visually to help set the mood. Um, we also do things like direct the viewer's eye. So macaws can be very small on screen at times. Some of the birds in the film were teeny tiny. So making sure that that little yellow bird read over the green background and things like that. Um, making sure that we developed a color scheme and a, and a value structure to allow the audience to look where they needed to look. And also, this is all, it's all a visual trick, right? Like anytime you watch a movie, you're either watching on a screen or a projection, but you're trying to visualize three a three-dimensional world. So we also work really hard to create shaping, volume, weight. Um, so those are the three things. You create mood, you direct the viewer's eye, and you you sculpt the the image visually to get the desired result and create a, create a three D world. So it seems like lighting is one of those roles that that extends out into lots and lots of different areas and tries to kind of make because I know with computer animated film production that that shots are given over to animators and you you said you know that you you take hold of particular shots so there there needs to be a sort of cohesiveness across across a film that takes years and years and years to produce but also a, a, a sequence that might be comprised of four or five different animators contribution on top of everybody else and every other artist so lighting is one of those things that has to try and move across the edits and move across the the cuts in a way that allows the spectators to kind of marvel at the accuracy, the detail, the complexity of these sorts of fictional worlds um, in ways that, yeah, in ways that sort of smooth out some of the, some of the potential, this shot was animated two years before this one. There's a real kind of cohesive, there's a cohesiveness to, to what lighting has to achieve. Would that, would that be fair that, that lighting stretch stretches across films like that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 one of the main challenges of, of lighting on a feature film. So, you know, if you light on an individual shot for a personal project, that shot kind of lives in its own isolated little world. Yeah. Uh, on the feature film, you have to make sure that the that the way your shot look matches from shot to shot to shot to shot. And in the best the best example I can give of that is in Rio, there's the chase sequence yeah. through the alley. Yeah. And there's there's Blue and there's Jewel, who's the female, who's the Anne Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. character mm-hmm. and and they are two different like we we intentionally made them slightly two different colors yeah blue is more royal blue and jewel is more cyan uh kind of like a lighter thing and so we constantly 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 were comparing shots to make sure that we knew who because they're just screaming through the city uh through this favela and just slamming into walls and jumping off this and flying through that and and so we always made sure that the audience could tell which one was which to help orient them all the time. So we, you know, you're constantly a being between between shots and and playing playing shots in, in order so that if one shot ends because like they're going through a, a city where there's a bunch of pockets of light, and so if if one shot ends with them in the light, they can't start the next shot in darkness. They have to start the next shot in light and then go to dark. You know what I mean? Like we have to make sure that all this is lines up and it's not just you. So these, these, these lighting sequences, the same way that six animators will work on a sequence. And by a sequence, I mean a series of shots that exist in one time in one place. So films are broken up into uh, chunks of sequences. Uh, The way it works for lighting is the, the, the sequence is done kind of all at the same time, but by multiple artists, there's a lead who's in charge of it and helps establish the look and originally gets approval, but then a whole bunch of artists get assigned to that sequence and you all have to work together to take what the lead has done, match to that, but make sure you match the looks to each other too. All again, while creating mood and shaping and and all that stuff. So it's a lot of like, a lot of moving pieces all at once. I mean, I've got, I mean, I've got 500 questions for you about lighting and mood. And, and um, I suppose we should, we should give a sort of two, two minute pricey of what this, what this kind of film is about, because I think the the narrative of the film really, as I said in the introduction, kind of lends itself to exactly this sort of, um, I mean, I, I, there's something about computer animated films, I think, as a as 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 a genre, I would I would argue at least there's a generic quality to computer animated films that where where light I- images or, or characters or objects have a kind of glowing candescence that that marks it out from perhaps slightly different different kinds of kinds of animation and and I feel like this Rio is sort of as I said in the intro a kind of perfect example of it's or it's a perfect setting or it's a perfect culture it's a perfect um kind of national context with which to really expand and play with and and maybe even cheat real life light um setups and 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 to kind of really play with the expressive qualities of of um of light but i guess we should give a quick kind of what is rio about what is the um yeah, yeah what is the what is the, the kind of perhaps you could tell us narrative. how it was pitched to you or so, you know how, what what was the you know, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 so so we i mean but as an artist when you work on things you 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 like you're working on them for a year or two right so you get them pretty early in development mm. yeah. um even as a lighting artist and and what we were pitched with was this idea that it was kind of a, a it was a little bit of a yeah. fish out of water type yeah. of a film um the director of the film is brazilian uh the the big thing for him was tell like more so than in any other film that I've ever worked on, the the city of Rio de Janeiro and the culture of Brazil was a main character as much as anything else in this film, and that was something that he really wanted to put forward. I don't, I, I think at the time no other film had been, uh, no animated film had ever been set um, in a modern day South America. Um, it was just like he really wanted to tell this this story. 
and the, the story that they came up with was a there was a uh, 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 an endangered species of bird called the blue macaw. And there was one that happened to be living a domesticated life in Minnesota as a pet uh, for this um, bookstore owner named Linda. And what, what, what happened was these researchers in, in Rio de Janeiro discovered that, that she had this bird. They had what they thought was the last female blue macaw. So they contact her and get her reluctantly to come down to Rio to get these two birds together to save the species. Um, and these smugglers find out that, that this is happening and these birds have a lot of value. So they kidnap Blue and Jewel. Blue is you know the bird from Minnesota. Jewel is the female from uh, Brazil. Kidnap them, take them away, uh, and then chases and hijinks into through favelas of Rio de Janeiro, through Carnival, through um, uh, the yeah, like the life of 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 Rio de Janeiro. That's that's perfect. Why can't we do it like that, Chris? That that would we be much better. I know, be I know. Better that's perfect. And I think you set up perfectly the kind of we have the story that that I'm sure you know has a familiarity with some computer animated features. We have Fish Out of Water, Journey Narrative, all that kind of fun stuff that you would expect from a story like this. But the key thing that you also highlight there is that it all takes place, or at least a lot of it takes place within the city of Rio and how palatable the feeling of being in Rio is to the movie. And I, and I was struck by that watching it um, earlier today. Um, and, I, and it made me think about sort of three zones of the movie that, that sort of it takes place. There's the sort of early bit in Minnesota where everything's cold and and drab and uh, you know it's blues and indoors, indoors. indeed. Then we have the kind yeah, of yeah, indoors. Rio. It's carnival, uh, street life, lots more kind of um, exteriors and lots lots more kind of uh, night shots. Uh, and I'm sure there's fun things you can do with night shots in terms of lighting. And then there's the kind of the surrounding rainforest as well, right? Because there are scenes where they kind of go beyond the city walls and and, and escape into sort of the wildlife beyond. So. Were you sort of thinking about that on the film in terms of how you light and how you make these three different atmospheres sing on the screen? Because it's so important to the theme, right? Because the theme is about this kind of bird that should be in Rio, but really is kind of feels like they want to be at home in Minnesota with a hot home chocolate. Yeah, with a hot yeah, chocolate. yeah, yeah. And and then like the the I mean the snow stuff we 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 had that down. We we did Ice Age. We did a couple of Ice Ages. Yeah, sure. Three of them. Uh, by then. Snow, ah, yes, boom, of course. Nailed like, it. We had that one in the back Got pocket. It. Yeah. Um, no, but, 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 uh, and even within, and so there was that, there was the, the jungle stuff that, um, we knew about because we'd, we'd just done Dawn of the Dinosaurs, which was, uh, kind of okay. set in a heavy propagated jungle. Um, so that we felt better, about, I felt better about that. The, the, the real, the real interesting one for us and the real challenge of this film was sure. Rio de Janeiro itself. Um, uh, and that was, we, we spent a lot of time, a, a, a brilliant lighting artist I worked with uh, named Ari Ross did this, did, like dove deep into the favelas. And cause, cause within the city, there are different sections that we go around. There's, there's sure. the favela section. Sure. Um, there's, there's the main city part. There's like the main row mm -hmm. where Carnival happens and all that stuff was kind of research. But the favelas, we really, really uh, dove into and kind of like what the aesthetics of those were, mm. um, like the blue barrels that are on top of like the water barrels that are on top of the roofs and the type of graffiti that was there. And the, um, we actually did all these tests to to figure out how stylized we wanted to make the film. So it was like we did some tests where the things were like really, really heavy graffiti and really kind of photoreal and accurate to totally whimsical and like curvy, you know, Dr. Seuss style buildings and stuff. And we kind of picked, you know, we, we would we would we would define the look in between those two and kind of kind of kind of narrow it in a little bit. Um, 
the other big, actually, like, and this is the dumbest one, is some of the biggest look development things that we had to do was uh, was two 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 big things. One was we'd never done a uh, film with with uh, characters with clothing, like a lot of clothes right. before. So oh, cool, cloth man. was like a huge thing. So early on during the testing, our characters were just running around naked um, because we hadn't we hadn't developed the cloth sim side of things yet. And then the other big one from from our standpoint was how to deal with the two main human characters wore eyeglasses. Okay. And that was such a pain in the butt for us because you had to deal with like <laughs> yeah. the reflections and the refractions and like reading their eye through it and how much we wanted to see how much warp we wanted and like that was that was a big time consuming thing. Yeah. So, so 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 sometimes it's it's the big stuff sometimes it's like how do you do carnival which is more crowds than we'd ever done before more props than we'd ever done before to something as small as like how do we deal with linda's eyeglasses i hadn't really thought about that that kind of placing of of rio within blue sky because i'm very interested in in, in blue sky as a, as a as a studio and as i said in the introduction again that is sort of we now speak of blue sky in the past tense which is kind of a shame when you look at the scope of of the kinds of films that they produce so so rio is their sixth feature film and actually your point about dealing with things that you hadn't dealt before is actually is, is absolutely borne out in the stuff that's come before you know you had snow down because of three of the ice age movies and then the other two robots is obviously a very particular kind of computer animated film uh, where everything has a uh, has a metallic sheen to it. Horton hears a who, so an adaptation of of a, the Doctor Zeus story from two thousand and eight. That I suppose leans towards a very caric very caricatured, as you as you mentioned, that sort of caricatured um, picture picture book style. And anytime you deal with like uh, a book franchise, like a Horton, uh, you're yeah. with the Seuss, you're like it's in collaboration with the Seuss folks. Uh, right, right, right. You're dealing in collaboration with the Schultz people, so which are all fine and good, but it's like your style is needs to be. You need to work with them to make sure that you're staying on their brand too. So yeah. you don't you yeah. don't get full you don't get oh, full interesting. creative. Okay, is that what because of the, the they have to map it to previous illustrations and visual designs of the comics and things? Yeah, yeah. The yeah they just things, I mean yeah. they own the rights to all that uh, to their characters to their story. So like you and you work with them on that, like to make sure that you're. Like Charlie Brown in 3D space was weird at first, and it took us some time to get that to look the way that everyone was happy with. But yeah, I mean, so 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 that's that was that, and that's kind of one of the things with Horton. But with with Rio, everything was on the table because it was yeah, on. yeah, yeah. See, that's that I think is really interesting because. Uh, so where are we now? So 2011. So computer animated films are 15, 16 years old, uh, and we are. And we, Alex and I were saying before before we started that trying to think about where and how computer animated films mm. have come on or where they've gone in the 10 years since a film like Rio. And I hadn't really thought about the influ potential influence of a film like Rio on films like Coco or Encanto on the way in which, the, or even, you know, um, The Book of Life or films where there is a, a, something else going on aesthetically or or in a way that, that certain animators are ta or studios are tapping into and discovering cultures in the case of the directors, you said, are really evidently a personal story where they're trying to make the city space a, a, a character in and of in and of itself um yeah i don't i don't i don't i mean i'm not going to credit rio for this but that's been i mean that's been the trend in films as yeah yeah that, that we're recognizing that you know uh that you can center a film around different cultures different people and different races and ethnicities and, and backgrounds and it it it's not like who knew like people would be interested in those things, right? Like it's bananas. So, um, so yeah, but that was definitely part of that trend of, of, of highlighting yeah. a different culture. And no, then actually that, that cultural thing came to a head a couple of times. Like there was um, one scene, if you guys have just watched it, there's a shot yeah. where, you know, Linda just arrives in, in Rio 
it's very different than Minnesota. It's carnivals. People are dressed in uh, bikinis and lots of glitter and like lots of lots of this. And there's a, there's a woman who's crossing the street in front of their yep, yep, yep. yeah. And the she's dentist. like, that must be one of the performers. And the guy and the guy's like, that's my <laughs> dentist. And he's like, hi, Doctor So and So. Um, and in the original, we had her in like a very like a in a bikini in a classic carnival outfit. And then somebody uh, somebody somewhere changed like the some executive song was like no 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 that's too risque we need to put her in a one piece and so they put her in a one piece and the director didn't know that that had happened and saw it and he was like the, the brazilian director is like she looks ridiculous nobody would wear that um right and so it, it like this kind of thing happened and what, what ended up happening the compromise so if you guys watched it in the uk i think the uk got the international one there's two there's two versions of that shot. So in in certain countries you'll see her in a two piece bikini that's that's traditional to carnival. In the U.S. in our um, in our in our conservative past ways she's in a one piece still glittery thing. Uh, still a doctor, still I mean, but like it's it like there there are these cultural things that pop up that like even at that time there was some some conflict. There's yeah different 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 regions get different versions of the product so so to go to, back to the, the, the city itself i mean that's a fascinating process to me then so how did the director want or were there any particular processes you were going through to try and render rio on screen in a way that he felt was reflective of, of the city space because i'm sure you've got to think a little bit about i mean there must be software where you can literally build a sort of 3D Rio and things like that, which I'm sure to an extent you've done in, in certain bits of the film and things like that. I'd love to know more about that. But as you say, this isn't a photorealist movie and you don't want, you don't want um, Rio, you want a, a version of Rio that, that fits the kind of tone and style of this movie. So perhaps you could talk us through kind of that process a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of like um, small identifiable characteristics that are unique to that area that you would only know if you live there yeah. or were very familiar with it. Again, like the color of the water towers, the type of graffiti, where the graffiti is located at, the type, the a big one was like the mosaic tile walkways that are all around, like the specific patterns that those are, where those are located at. It was very, it was very much a lot of like, um, from, from what I remember, it was a lot of like people, like artists uh, internally using these reference data, reference images and, and stuff that uh, we found online or, or we, had, we did send some of our art team down there to, to photograph and actually be in Carnival to like experience it so that you could kind of, um, and, and, and they would, they would, you know, the director and others would constantly be like, okay, no, this isn't, that's not how that would look. This would look more like that. So it was like, it was more represent, representative of the small details of a space. Cause we all live somewhere and, and know, know the way it looks at night, know the way that the light hits it during the daytime um, and helps us find those nuances to really make it real for the, we, we were striving to really make it real for the people that live there. So, so what do you do with those references as an artist? I mean, to ask a bunch of stupid questions. Do you what? Do you just use them as while you're programming and have them as sort of a visual reference? Do you scan them in and and play with them with some software? What what? You you use them as a as a visual reference, and then you kind of pull attributes from those like visually into your design. So like, if uh, a good example is like um, uh, like the mosaic tiles, right? Like there are there are lots of photographs online. You can search right now for mosaic tile sidewalks in Rio, and you can find a whole bunch of them. And what we do is you kind of assemble, like you, you, there's like a gathering phase where you gather up as many of them as you want, then you analyze them and you kind of pinpoint the ones that you want that meet your style within the film. And then as long as it's not like an identifiable place that has a very specific pattern, 
you can yeah, kind of play yeah. with it a little bit. So it's like, it's identifying the characteristics. Like the tiles are always, are almost always black and white, right? Like, so black and white tiles that have these very kind of wavy organic, but also like repeatable shapes in them too. It's like, okay, so then we can kind of go off of that. And then um, a lot of them too was like the um, design of the vehicles too was, 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 was a big thing. So it was like the types of cars that are in Rio. And then we kind of like overdid those. They made them a little more boxy and squished and small and, and things like that. So there was, there was, uh, so when, when you, when you get the reference, it's literally just a visual cue in your design process. Cause all, everything that's designed, it goes through drawing, like people draw it first. Like we have designers who like on Wacoms or on pen and paper or whatever they do, they, they, they yeah. will draw out and they do their set designers and their character designers and everything's done on paper in 2d form before we start building in 3d and would that be true of the lighting was there a, did you come to some sort of consensus as what rio lighting looks like or was it a sequence by sequence yeah no no it's it's a the way that works is they develop what's called a color script for the film or color key for each sequence and that the art director or one of the art art department uh artists will actually take the scene and they give you what we call paint over. So it's like the lights coming in from this way. These are the dark sections. These are the light sections. This is roughly what the color scheme is for the for it. And then we take those paintings and then we translate them into the into the computer right. as well. So it's a lot of like, well, well, you know, they'll the director, the art director, the art, the artists, uh, lighters will all kind of like they start to build it. We collaborate on what that means and what what the visual goals were. And then once we pull that into the computer, we we base all of our stuff off of that. And then we try and add to whatever their goal was. So we, it's, cause some people will see that and be like, oh, they just give you paintings of what they want and they just do it. And you're like, yes, that is the the start of it. But we really work with them to kind of make sure that we understand the the vision that they had and the uh, aesthetic goal. And we help plus that. Okay. I had a, I had a, I suppose jumping off of that, I had a, I had a question about the role of the sort of studio authorship because, you know, Blue Sky, uh, amid a sort of 90s tussle for for computer animated film supremacy between Pixar and 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 DreamWorks at that time and Disney would join the fray you know Blue Scar are Blue Sky are really important because they sort of come in under the radar a little bit, but they are part of, a, I think, a sort of contemporary iteration of a, of a classical studio system where you have, um, and I think your career perhaps bears this out a little bit that you have sort of close creative and perhaps long-term relationships within studios um lack of migration between studios kind of relatively loyal and stable workforce and also creative figures that have become synonymous with computer animated film production like chris wedge and and, and carlos santana at blue sky so i've always been interested in the sort of the way in which the contemporary hollywood animation industry has been structured in a kind of classical way that you have your your blue sky and you have your dreamworks and you have your pixar and you have your disney and they have sort of illumination sony and illumination and and i so i just wondered are you you if you're coming to you're coming to 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 blue sky i suppose after they've done a two or three films and you're sort of entering into a, a, a um a, a studio are you, because I've always thought, you know, this idea of, of studios having a particular kind of aesthetic identity or tonal identity, and I feel like, you know, we know a, we know a Pixar film from a DreamWorks film, and a lot of the relationship between the two is often founded on uh, DreamWorks established a tone, Pixar established the look of computer animated films, and, and those two things together have really set, set off what computer animated films look and, and feel like moving forward. Were you, before you joined Blue Sky, were you sort of, 
one obviously aware of them but more importantly is the sort of was there a sense of a studio or a studio style that you're also having to negotiate as part of a we wouldn't do this in a blue sky film or this feels more dreamworks i just i've never i never really thought about it in that way when you have animators who are kind of coming and as you mentioned earlier you have your your peanuts and your horton and you also ha- and you're trying to navigate computer animated films whilst thinking about character design and what 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 peanuts looks like or what what Horton looks like but it was there did you have a sense of a studio a blue sky identity that you're also having to wrestle with or adhere to or, or a template for those kinds or their kind of movies the one thing um so to for a history uh blue sky had been around since like 1990 i think i don't yeah. quote me on that age but but it was just founded by like six people who like one yeah. of them being chris wedge um, and like this is literally the smallest thing. Like they, Chris Wedge originally like animated on Tron. Uh, met a guy named you know Carl Ludwig, who was our, our 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 main the guy who wrote like the renderer who rendered all of our films. Um, and and Chris Wedge, who is like the creative director, he was the director of the original Ice Age. He's the voice of Scrat. Um, yeah. He he is just an incredible. Both those guys are just incredible, incredible human beings to work with. Um, and they were they were phenomenal. Um, and. Uh, but yeah, when when you come to Blue Sky, one of the th- one of the things that I thought that you know that Blue Sky didn't do as well as Pixar or Disney was establish a brand identity. Like, they're, they're, right, like they're, right. the way that Pixar has a Pixar movie, and you know you're going to cry somewhere during it. You know that like <laughs> like a DreamWorks movie is going to be like blah, blah, blah. like it's going to be kind of crazy, like whatever. But they they have very distinct styles. Um, Blue Sky never established that early on, yeah. and we were uh, be, at the end. We were I was excited because what was happening was that Pixar was getting pigeonholed into making Pixar movies and Disney couldn't do certain projects. Um, and, and blue sky had gotten by on being fiscally responsible by making money, by making movies at half the budget that Pixar movies were, um, by having kind of, by like a smaller team that was tighter and closer. And we were the only mm. studio on the East coast of the U S that, that mm. like you talk about the loyalty, a lot of that is because people just have family on the East coast and they want to live out here. They like, I love living in New York. Like that was why I stayed at blue sky for so long. It was, it was, you know, partially the project, but also just mm-hmm. sheer geography mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, really and so, so what, what ended up happening was towards the end, the last, uh, the film that we were working on that I don't even, I, I mean, it was, it was announced, it was called Nimona was stylistically different than anything that we had done before it was tonally different than when we like a tone that was darker and more like tougher and uh it was about a uh, at its undercurrent it was about a transgender character and it was about like like topics that that disney and mm-hmm. pixar couldn't really um dive into unfortunately it, we were unable to make that come to fruition um and yeah, but yeah, but like yeah. we were we were about to do this thing that I was really excited about, which was not be like be loyal to the look of a film and not a style of a studio. In which case we could right. we were building a pipeline that was versatile. So we could do Spider-Verse style looking things, we could do hyper-real looking things, we could do and that that was gonna be the fun part as 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 an artist was just like because you could you could just dive into different styles. And it's there's nothing there's you know, it's certainly not. Uh, it's never boring to work on these films, but if you're doing the same thing stylistically, film after film after film, it doesn't. You find you find that you get into like little bits of ruts. Yeah, and stuff. It, must, it must be tough yeah, though, because yeah. what it sounds like is that almost part of building an animation studio is building up your arsenal of of things you've got 
as, as you said, now, we can do snow now. We can do, you know, and so with each film, you're building your storytelling arsenal. And so if you start from scratch with each movie, you're, you're, you're you know, the, you're, you're, you're losing. Not that I'm sure it's quite so clear cut as that, but yeah. Clear-cut the technology that, but yeah. does carry over and the knowledge does carry over. Like I always, I always laugh at. So uh, Disney animation did a brilliant job in Moana with the water and the water looks sure. beautiful. And so like every film after that, they just like happen to be by an ocean and they have this beautiful <laughs> water floating around in every film. I always laugh about that. But um, but like a lots of times too, studios, like that's the whole reason why studios do shorts too, is to test technology. Like Piper is one of my all time favorite ones by Pixar. It was to test that sand technology that was so rad. It looked so good. And then I, I like it, it came up again in Luca. Like you just, you test this stuff and then you kind of have it in your arsenal. Yeah. yeah. But in, and you're able to, you pull from that library, right? But I was going to say, it's also, it's not just shorts, because I suppose one of the things I, I've I've been interested in Pixar's relationship to advertising and the way in which they used, adver- for, for a period at least, um, when they weren't making shorts, it was actually their commercial work and their sort of for hire business, if you like, that, that kept them over alongside kind of software sales. And it feels like Blue Sky had a similar sort of relationship. So they, am I right in thinking there was their own trademark software CGI studio. They sort of experimented with ray tracing, photorealism across over 200 television commercials. And, and Susan, Susan Omer's written a couple of pieces for the Society of Animation Studies blog, which talks about their work for Chrysler, M&M's, uh, Texaco Braun, Bell Atlantic, and the sort of dramatic every day where they're rendering sort of a close-up of coffee beans that personify and, and jump around or, or a sort of, I think there's a, she talks specifically about a 1992 advertisement for a blonde flex control razor that was convincingly rendered um, or convincingly rendered, sorry, the density, transparency and reflectivity within the kind of reconstruction of, of the shaver's sleek metallic surface. So it's not, it is short, but it's also this important kind of commercial work. And, and it feels like, so like so many studios, Blue Sky, went through that process of using shorter formats, whether it's commercials or whether it's um, short films, Bunny, or as you say, these sorts of really shorter films where there's an experimental... That's not to discredit what these films are for or what they're doing. They're not just experiments with certain technology, but they often function as really important spaces where even creatives can try their hand at a short film before they maybe move on to a feature-length um featuring the film and it, and it seems like it's not that blue sky have been written out of the history of computer animation but but because they haven't had that they're not pixar and they're not disney and they're not dreamworks um i mean they're very successful in and of themselves but their their history they do sort of similar things in their feature films and now that we're sort of at the end of blue sky if you like this thir- this body of 13 features is a really really important block of movies where computer animated aesthetics went in lots and lots of different directions and they they are the closest to a film like Spider-Verse really if you think about the difference the different kinds of things that they've done um across those those 13 those 13 feature films um no it just kind of strike me you know the, their role within contemporary Hollywood is really is really important and striking and perhaps isn't isn't really thought about in the way that other studios might might be it's it's interesting now that we're almost a year out from the closing to look back on it and think of what Blue Sky's yeah, yeah. Uh, place in the history of animation is. Um, but yeah, it, d- it definitely doesn't get the credit. I mean, like there, when I think it was when Monsters University came out, there was all these articles about how that was the first fully ray traced animated film of all time, right. and we have Blue Sky going like that's absolutely not true <laughs> we've been doing this they've been doing That's fully stuff since 1992 like what are you talking about yeah. um and so like so you were talking about the commercial work in the 90s yeah like that i mean 
So they were building this render, right? And it was really all about making like the best images. And then, and then like their bread and butter, how they made money was doing these commercial projects. And I really do think that that the commercials were in the in the films they did like was it the talking fish from the sopranos and joe's apartment the cockroach movie and some, and oh, yeah, some yeah. other stuff too um and all that was to I, I in my head they were just funding this really cool project of making cg images and it's just like whatever 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 they could work they could do to test it and make money um and then 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 that led to bunny which was the yep. animated short uh that uh, won an academy award and it was great. And it was, it was through that. And then, then it was like after Toy Story, the big companies started, started being like, oh, these, this feature of 3D animation could be a real, a real thing. And so that's when 20th Century Fox approached Blue Sky yeah. about purchasing them. Yeah. And then, and then, cause I, I don't, I don't know if I, and then, and then they developed um, Ice Age and, and released Ice Age in collaboration with 20th Century Fox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Fox is, it's, we did a Don Bluth episode a couple of episodes ago and i know that yeah fox had kind of already tried to break in to that at that point a quite a lucrative animation market in in the 90s um headed by blue so you have anastasia titan ae but really it, it's fox's relationship and 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 the industry the sort of tectonic plates to steal a several jokes from one of the ice age movies um the continental drift if you will of the industry is is such that that you have studios and subsidiaries that then work with these bigger bigger uh, you know dreamworks buying or working with uh, pdi or, or big idea and just sort of subsuming them into these big so you have this again you have these big voices within contemporary hollywood but then blue sky working with with fox becoming a subsidiary of 20th century fox then being purchased by disney and now being shut there it's sort of a just just an interesting narrative i think in, it's hard way, well but, I, I, gotta, yeah. I gotta tell you the hard the hardest part right now is that um you know disney's coming out with this some like ice age content on disney oh, yeah. that we don't have anything to do with and it's like yeah. it's so hard to watch and i wasn't even there from the beginning like to, to, i think about chris wedge again amazing dude who just like he invented these guys and then uh sold it to a company because that's what you had to do you like because it costs a hundred million dollars to make these movies, we didn't have a hundred million dollars, right? Like, or sixty million, or whatever it was at the time. And so you have to partner with these big companies to get your vision made, and then they sell you, and then they sell you to someone else who arbitrarily shuts you down, and then takes the thing that you made yeah. and yeah. makes a makes a worse version of it. And it's a really it's really hard to um, to wrap your head around that and, and to, yeah. to to do that. But it's kind of like it's kind of the, it's just kind of the way it works, man. It's just, it's just, it sucks. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of like when you say it goes to show, if you ever, if, if kids at home, if you ever, if you ever make something and sell it to another company, it's great. And you get a big chunk of change, but you lose the, you lose the ability to keep it afloat and have control over what happens with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah it'd be so. painful if we ever see blue pop up at like Disney world or whatever. I yeah. Can do that, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the, the carnival, oh, God, the carnival yeah, parade. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, there will be one. There will be one piece bikinis there. There will yeah. not be <laughs> for the kids, yeah, depending on, on, on which Disneyland we're in. Um, right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, Paris. Whatever, do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to come back to let's go back to Rio because you mentioned that yeah, there'll yeah. be certain sequences that you were sort of tasked with as 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 part of the mm -hmm. role. Is that right? I understand the right. So there'll be certain yeah. moments in the movie that sort of yeah yeah. yeah. You so so as on. as an artist, you're you're heavily invested in smaller chunks of the movie, and then the, there's literally some some stuff I didn't see until the the um, 
the premiere. <laughs> so, talk, so talk us through some of your moments then. You mentioned one, which was the, the favela yeah. sequence, which I'm delighted to hear. Yeah. It was one of the standout moments of the movie for me. I'm not just saying. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun one. Um, yeah. yeah there, I, so my, my, the, the ones I spent the most amount of time on was uh, the, yeah, the favela chase sequence. There was the sm inside the smugglers room mm -hmm. when they're like, mm -hmm. when oh, Blue's yeah. pretending to be dead. Um, that was, that was a really good one. That there was, there was a great, uh, back and forth. So there's, there's them, like I was, I was, to, I was show as an example of them walking down the alley to get into the mm. smugglers room mm. because it's, it's the, uh, that was where we had the most, like, that was, that was one of the moments where, when an animator and a lighter were like, like these two ideas were diametrically opposed. So, uh, blue and jewel are, are trapped in a cage. That cage is covered by a, a heavy piece of fabric with a small hole cut out of it. It's nighttime. They're in a dark alley. There's no reason for there to be light in there. And so when the lighter uh, first lit it, uh, this amazing guy named Brian Dean, when he first lit it, it was like dark and moody. And there was just like a ray of light coming in through this hole. And you can just kind of see a little bit of them and it looks super cool. Uh, but but when we showed the director, they're like, but you can't see any of the performance that they, that they animated. Yeah. And we're like, so, <laughs> so what? <laughs> the lighting looks amazing. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. so when you when you look, so so we 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 had to find a, a look that worked for everybody. But like, but if you look at that, there's there's a, a thousand times more light than would ever get into a heavily cloth bird. Anyway, so there's that sequence. There's the chase sequence. Um, I did a, I did some carnival stuff at the end. Okay. Um, there was I I had this on my own. There's like a three shots. There's like a uh, a three shot sequence that was just like. A, a cutaway of them, like a silhouette of the guy handing him the money against the plane and the plane taking off with like the smugglers are making the tra mm -hmm. the financial transaction part. Um, I worked a little bit on the opening sequence, that song and dance number. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which was there, that opening shot, the guy who sat across uh, the hall from me, again in JU, he, he always, we, we would call them the Widowmaker shots because they're just like the ones that you see and you're just like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? So it's literally like a, a, like a little bird hops and then there's the Rio logo because the, it's the film title. And, the, and then the bird flies away and flies over these and these other birds pop up and like all these other crazy things happen. And he spent like months sure. on that. So sure. there, there were like in, in the rest of that sequence, we helped. And the, the tough part of those is you have to do the title shot like 14 times because there's every language you have to do it for. So there's like English and oh, Portuguese yeah. and Mandarin and Japanese and like all these different ones you have to, and you have to do them over and over and over again. Uh, I mean, like you can render them once, but like compositing, you have to put in the different yeah. title cards all the time. Can I come back to that that example you gave of the of the the, the they're trapped under the, you know, do, do you light it well and, and the lighting is cool, but, and realistic, but, doesn't capture some of the stuff so it's because it sounds like when you were listing those things that lighting brings to the to the movie and they're things that you know when we do kind of you know film language or you know come on how do we analyze a movie it's things we're really keen to express and for my film production students i'm like you know the one thing you're going to be doing is waiting around on set a lot for them to get the lighting right so we may as well pay attention to it now we're watching the movie right so um but sounds like some of the stuff is is adding weight and realism and a, and a sense of believability to everything because you because without the light it doesn't it doesn't feel alive right um but the other thing you're doing is you're stylizing it you're you're kind of it's it's part of an almost illustrative process so i guess with my fantasy hat on part of what you're doing is making the thing more realistic and part of the thing what you're doing is 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 adding to the sense of imagination or sense of um 
you know what the word is speculation of it all like you're you're, you're playing with the image as well yeah totally yeah the way i always describe lighting on a film because people because I, I i my my actual degree is in photography my undergrad okay and they're like oh that must that must come in handy and i was like sure but like lighting because they assume assume lighting for a film is like photography or like lighting for a live action film and it's not it's much more like painting than it is because you because you you work off of the believability of light right like you uh -huh. work off that a campfire lets off light that dies off after a certain point and all that but you have total control over over the over what it's doing so like um as long as you don't break reality with the audience you can pretty much do whatever the heck you want and it's just and then and then it's just and then it's like to, to the point of telling the story so like you there there you'd be amazed what you can kind of get away with in believability to a to a point and then it, like it really does drop off a cliff like once you hit go yeah, yeah. make something a little bit too bright people are like nope that does not look right but but you do have leeway in believability so it's and and there there that's the difference between light because there's there's lighters who light for live action films to integrate transformers into los angeles and then there's lighting for an animated film and 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 lighting to integrate is all about making sure the shadows match making sure the black points and the white points of the image match and all that stuff animation you, it's much more about like the mood and the story and that kind of thing because you have more flexibility and the realism of it yeah, so yeah. it sounds like it's it, yeah it's more creative well i don't like creative because i wanted to be dis do a disservice to the transformers artists yeah. but it's, it's there's more no, room no, no. to think about doing things not because that's the way they have to be done but because that's the way they want to be done uh, yeah yeah and, and 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 to be clear the vfx lighters have an extremely difficult yeah, task yeah, yeah, with that. yeah it's like that is an art form in itself that's really cool sure but it's, it's just different it's just a different mindset yeah, yeah you've got more um i don't know flexibility or whatever the right word is yeah, yeah, okay, cool. yeah, yeah. And, and then i have uh, in terms of the lighting it sounds like you might not have worked on these sequences but i also noticed talking of films that this that rio sets up uh, and you mentioned moana um mm -hmm. we also have um uh what's his name uh, from flight of the concords jermaine um oh jermaine yeah jermaine doing yeah, doing, uh, yeah. doing oh doing, my god uh, that guy is amazing <laughs> Uh, and and I noticed. So I do have a question about that. The way that character is lit, yeah, and versus how other characters. Are lit. So is there is there such a thing as villainous uh, or heroic lighting? How does one make yeah. a character look bad <laughs> well, and good from lighting? Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the thing that was hard about that character is that he's a white feathered bird, and right. Sno Snoopy, uh, Ferdinand, any character that's either all white or all black is really really hard. Because you kind of got to light them in a way that they don't get too bright, but then if it like falls off, it looks a little dingy. Uh -huh. um, but we definitely, definitely hit up his villainous thing. His introduction shot when he's standing on the body of the security guard and the flashlight rolls underneath him and like shines up under him. Uh, I'm just gonna keep uh, uh, one of one of my artist friends, Rosalinda, lit that, and she just did like an absolutely brilliant job with that one. So the villainous stuff is all about like underlighting. It's all about contrast, like increasing the contrast on it. It's all about like, it's all about just like heavy, like, and, and when I talk about contrast, it's not just light and dark values. It's like heavy contrast and color. Sure. And, and also it's a lot of sharp lines. It's a lot of small shapes. Um, you learn that as a lighting artist, like larger, softer shapes create comfort in the audience and smaller, tighter, like shadows that, that exist and like really kind of create a unease in them uh imbalance in the shot like visual imbalance creates unease in in the viewer as well so it's it's like there's obviously the 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 first thing you always think of is the underlight is the flashlight under your chin to look spooky sure. thing but sure. a lot of that is is more saturated colors sharper shapes all that kind of stuff 
Definitely, definitely villainous lighting. Although that guy is amazing. There, so we, there, uh, some of the artists went down to uh, Rio for the premiere and he was there and just like party with them and was just an absolutely lovely dude. He was like, it was funny because like, you know, Jamie Foxx is in the movie Anne Hathaway, Jesse Eisenberg, and they're like walking the red carpet and everyone's like fawning over them. And like Jermaine just like walks in with the other artists. Like, hey guys, like nobody, nobody really noticed yeah. him at all. So I am... Um... I, I've sort of wanted to to pick your brains a little bit about that compromise position that it seems like lighting directors or, or um, when it comes to lighting techniques, the compromise position that you have to occupy between stylization and, and realism. And uh, it's it's interesting that the first, the first, if, well, one of the first, if not the first, fully fleshed anim- computer animated character happens to be a lamp, i.e. The, the, and 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 there's something in that with regards to the idea of of, of what Luxo Jr. is a short film did, and also the sort of I think there were some Sesame Street spin-offs featuring Luxo Jr. with regards, and they were called things like light and heavy and front and back and up and down, and they were like educational. Like this is how we're supposed to understand computer animated worlds. This is how physics works. This is how light works. Um, and I don't think it's any coincidence that Luxo Luxo Jr. is is one of our first characters because it, it emphasizes the importance of of light to, to character and, and storytelling and I've sort of embraced Luxo as a descriptor to talk about computer animated film worlds more more generally because I think as I said there is that sort of glowing glowingness to, to, to computer animated films but I I was reminded I think it was during the production of Wally where they got Roger Deakins on board to talk about cinematography and lighting and there's I think it's on going back to your Finding Nemo kind of making of special feature thing that started off this journey for you um, I think there's a special feature on on the Wally DVD that's that's Roger Deakins talking about lighting and he he's talking in a room for the full of Pixar animators and they've got their like notepads out and they're ready to write down whatever he says and he gets someone to sit on a chair and then he goes right. We'll have this light and a key light and this light and a bounce light and this. And he he looks. He says, "This is how I was told to light it." And then he asks the audience whether they think it's successful. And they're like, "Yeah, it's not that interesting. It's fine." And and he says, "Yeah, what's more interesting is that guy over there standing in the corner that's getting the benefit of refractions and light that's bouncing off of people in the room." And um, and it's the sort of how do we? There's the realistic lighting, and then there's sort of there's a, you know fantasy lighting or there's there's lighting that at least is used to to sort of cheat cheat what we might understand as realistic the realistic behavior of light but at the same time light is connected to enhanced visibility which is presumably connected to appeal and so you are always having to sit sit in between it's not just the you know it's not just characters that are settings that are stylized or or occupy a space between hyperrealism or photorealism and caricature lighting has to do do interesting things all the time because some scenes presumably do lend themselves to more realistic lighting whereas other scenes as the scene you described in the dark you have to sort of navigate around the realism of the scene in order to sort of create meaning or to create drama to go back to the, the point in terms of mood um did you kind of feel that you're you are in this in this compromised position all the time what's legible what isn't what's realistic what isn't yes yeah all the time and and <laughs> yeah. and what and another big thing is about animated films is that they have a target audience age right like yeah and they're different <clears throat> like rio uh you know spies in disguise was older than rio which was older than peanuts and in peanuts we were very oh. aware that it was a younger audience so we're just trying not to we're just trying not to scare the crap out of kids like that's <laughs> so so you're trying to create drama without just yeah. like making them lose it because you also have to be aware of the medium in which it's being presented which is a dark movie theater and if you darken it even more 
and then just kind of like you you are creating a situation that that can be it's dramatic but can be a little bit too much for the for your intended audience um uh and and so so yeah but you are constantly and every artist on a film is dealing with two contradictory things all the time which is you are collaborative and you are working together for the good of the film because that's what we're all there for we're all we're all there to, to meet the director's vision and make this thing as good as we can there's also the arrogance of an artist which is like i want my thing to stand out which is always like a thing <laughs> that kind of comes through and so like and and and, and because you you just want to do the best job that you can and like and we always said this about you know in between animators the effects artists who do the effects simulation so dust expl explosion they always want like their effects to stand out more and you're like no it kind of needs to integrate more with the shot they're like but then you can't see it and you're like but yes but it needs to integrate it's like it was like an endless battle and it's the same thing with lighting the lighters always want to make things more dramatic always want to like um hit it harder with the the um like the roger deacons thing we we yeah. don't like it's it's less interesting for us if because that's kind of like the hero lighting, the three-point lighting with the Rembrandt yeah. lighting and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Like that's great, and it works out really well for movie posters and stuff. But in the film, like we would love to get that secondary light thing happening off of them, and and you know you don't always you you, you uh, get directed in a way that would indicate that they wanted it more like the the hero lighting stuff too. So it is a constant push and pull, and and each director, yeah. each art director is different. Each style is is a little different. So you you learn to work with um you and but then, then like again you you push it and then you always know that you're working with a specific style with an art director or director to um so you you modify it to their liking as well yeah right you've been very generous of your time and it's been great to talk to you about rio just before we say goodbye to you do you want to just tell us about what you're up to now i know you're um involved in a project called the academy of uh, animated art um perhaps for listeners who might be interested in that you could tell us a little bit about that yeah so if you're interested uh in in, in a possible career in in lighting on animated films i started an, an online school with uh one of my my co-founder jasmine katatakarn who we lit together on uh, at Blue Sky Films for years, we were doing recruiting trips to colleges around the U.S., and we were discovering that there were a lot of people who were interested in lighting, but they didn't—they weren't given the skills to uh, create a demo reel that would put them in a position for a job. Uh, it was the same thing that I, I struggled with too, uh, which is why I had to take a render wrangling job out of school. I couldn't get an artistic job. Um, so what we did was we started an online school that, and because what we were finding is that these students were just like like their artwork wasn't up to speed you know like they just didn't have it on their reel yet and when we talked to them they were so focused on the technology like i just need to learn this software i just need to learn this render i just need to learn this and here we came from a studio again uh you know you talked about wally wally is beautiful it was done 17 15 years ago with technology yeah, yeah. and on hardware that is way outdated but it looks amazing the blue sky movies were done the renderer that we used is we didn't even have a, a GUI for it. There was no user interface for it. It was just like lines of code that we would type and then we'd render out an image. It's, it, but, it, but it didn't matter because you have artists who have craft and artistic knowledge to make beautiful images. So we decided to start an online school that really focused on training people's eye to see the world differently and to make beautiful images. So we have a series of classes um, that you can take online, pre-recorded lectures, uh, sign up for those. Uh, we also provide, I do daily lighting critiques for the time being, and we provide daily uh, professional feedback on your work. 
and which is a huge part of any artistic pursuit because it doesn't matter anybody who's ever tried to learn how to draw or how to create something, you hit a wall where you can look at it because your eye and your, your mind develops faster than your skill. And you can look at it and be like, this isn't good enough. And I don't know why. And it's super frustrating. So we provide <laughs> an outlet for you, post your work. I'll, I'm like, I, I joke that I'm like Ron Burgundy with a teleprompter, put anything in front of me, I'll critique it. And, um, <laughs> uh, and, and so we, we really, really help our students. And, and in the time that we've, we've, we've had this program, we've had uh, now over 300, three or 400 students go through it. We help people get jobs all over the world. Um, our artists are now at, you know, DreamWorks, Disney. Um, we had, we had two of our, two of our students get into the, the Disney apprenticeship program, which was really cool this year. Um, we've got senior artists at Sony. Like I said, one of our, our, our student, one of our first students is, is, was a senior lighter on Spider-Verse. And he was a guy that, wow. um, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's so many people with the same story. Like they're either in school or they just, you know, they're, they're, they're working in another industry and it just doesn't feel right. Uh, and they want an opportunity to switch. And so we really focus in on giving you the training and the skills that you will specifically need to, to help get a job. Because for me, it's, this industry has been life-changing. I can't imagine, yeah. I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, I was really, you know, I was bartending in the evenings to make ends meet and trying to figure out my life in between. And if I didn't, hadn't found this, I don't know where I would have ended up, but uh, it's creative. It's technically challenging. The people you work with are incredible. You get to work on really cool projects that you get your name in the credits. Like, let's not pretend like that's not cool. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's great. It's all, it's all good. And if listeners wanted to find that, where could they, uh, where do they need to go? There's a website, right? There's, uh, there's, uh, oh yes. Sorry. I should say <laughs> more things. Uh, www.academyofanimatedart.com. Terrific. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, hopefully. And then, yeah, you can find the classes from there. Uh, reach out to us. We'll happy, happy to answer any questions that you might have. Mike's Wonderful. been kind enough to Wonderful. write a, a blog post for us as well, where you can uh, yeah. read some of his tips. Yes. And they'll, we'll put a link to to the academy in that as well, so people can find that either if you're listening right now or in the future, it'll be on. We will put a link into the into the blurb, and and people can read. Um, as long as they're listening to the podcast, they can sort of uh, yeah read your read your blog post and uh, actually watch some of your work. And we'll obviously hyperlink to to your um to your uh, online space as well. So thank you for more behind the scenes discussion. You can of course visit fancy-animation.org. We have professional animators writing for us uh, through blog posts, as well as contributing to various past episodes of the Fancy Animation podcast. We've got uh, VFX artists from Trickster talking about Captain Marvel. We've got uh, John Musk and Ron Clements talking about writing and directing um, Treasure Planet. And we've also had uh, animators and VFX artists who worked on the um, twisty turny television program Dark as well. So definitely check out um, yeah, definitely check out those episodes. Many more besides, I'm sure, all available on the archive, fancy-animation.org. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. And it's the same if you want to send us an email, fananimresearch at gmail.com. Uh, footnote episodes will be launching in the in-between weeks, so if you've got any questions you want us to solve in 10 minutes or less, uh, we'll happily um, devote our time to it then, keep them coming, um, and thank you for those who've sent them in so far. Um, otherwise, that's been us for another episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye.